Hi, this is Sherry from Sandwich Parenting. Today, our guest is Jen Lumenland. At Your Parenting Mojo, she examines scientific research related to child development through the lens of respectful parenting. She is a prolific researcher, writer, and podcaster. In our conversation, Jen touches on numerous topics that I think you will find profound and insightful. Hello, good morning, Jen. Good morning. How are you today? Fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us for Sandwich Parenting. I'm going to jump right in because I have a question for you that's not quite parenting related. I love your accent and I can't quite place it. (laughs) And I I know I put in my question that it's not for the recording, but I I am curious. So I'm going to ask you to guess. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, I hear a lilt. So I'm wondering if it's kind of from an Irish or Scottish um, background and there's a slight New Zealand um, twang to it. So (laughs) that's, that's my guess. Okay. Uh, close, but no cigar. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the English that's been over in the States for too long. <laughs> Is that right? So you're originally from England? Yeah, but I've been in the States for more than 20 years. So. Yeah. But still say 20, still say aluminium and centrifugal and all the important words. Aluminium. How about lorry and lift? Um, or have you switched? Oh, yeah. Uh, lorry, not so much. Lift, yes. Do you spell a coolor? Um, or color? No, I'm pretty American on the spellings these days. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. I wanted to let you know that I'm a huge fan of your parenting mojo. So I'm wondering if you can share, and I know you talk about it a lot um, on your website as well, but can you share when and why did you start your parenting mojo? Mm, I think it was, I actually had to cast back, (laughs) I think it was around late 2016 Mm -hmm. when I, I mean, you you get, you sign up when you have a baby for emails from baby center and all these websites and and they keep coming even after you have the baby and and they're so clickbaity and I got one one day and it said five ways to tell if your child has a developmental delay and it, I mean, it just... (laughs) Oh my goodness. Who, who's not going to click that? Who's not going to be terrified enough to click through and yes. see, does my child have a mental delay? Totally. And so what I would invariably find from, from those things is that uh, they they would only ever, if they looked study at all, a, a peer-reviewed scientific study, they would look at one study and never would place it within the broader uh, suite of research that's available. So even if you understood what the, the correctly what this one study found, <laughs> you could never know, well, is this confirming the last 20 years of research or is this one such an outlier that we shouldn't pay attention to it? And so the, I really wanted that information and I couldn't find it anywhere. And th- so uh-huh. I thought, well, okay, I have, I have crappy parenting intuition, but I have really good reason <laughs> to <feel> so. <laughs> so I can, I can use the latter to fill the gaps in the former. And uh, that's how the podcast was born. So wait a minute, going back to, um, you have crappy parenting instincts, which mm-hmm. I would, I would think is true for most people. <laughs> they don't make us take a test for it. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but you said that you have good research skills. Why is that? Well, I mean, on the parenting instinct side, I, I never wanted children. I've never even liked children. <laughs> I hear you. Yes. Um, yeah. So when, when my siblings would, uh, we would have friends who had a young child and okay, I want to hold the baby. Can I hold the baby? And I'm like, that's fine. 
it's good. I don't need to hold a baby. No. Even, <laughs> even with my grown up friends, yeah, we had babies. It was just the same. I, I don't need to hold a baby. Thank you very much. Um, and so I never, I never had that real urge to be a parent, and ended up doing it because I didn't want to be responsible for the biggest disappointment in my husband's life. Oh my god, <laughs> well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a decision I made. He didn't yes. pressure me into doing it, no, but, but yeah, it was, it was something that he really wanted, and something I really kind of didn't, but came around to it. Um, and then on the research skills, I don't know, I've kind of always been a reader and I read mm. fast. And um, and so it, it's just something that I really enjoy doing, pulling information from a lot of sources and and pulling it together and say, okay, well, how do these things fit? Like if, mm. if I know this is true and I know this is true, what does that mean for like, what I believe about this topic? And um, and then translating that into things that parents can actually use to make decisions is is uh, the research the, the resource I was looking for, and and I think other parents have have really found a hunger for that as well. Yeah, and and it seems that like you mentioned, articles tend to pick one result that sort of perhaps came out of some research, and then they'd kind of make that the big title of research says 75% of whatever, whatever. And then you're thinking 75% of what? Like who, who, who did you study? Or did that include oh, a yes. certain age range? Like you, you, you don't know, right? So why do you think this doesn't happen often enough? And, and why is it so critically important to you? Well, I mean, firstly, because it requires more digging than just reading the abstract. So it's, <laughs> it's yeah, hard work. I'll read 30 peer-reviewed papers for an average podcast episode. It takes me a week to do oh, a podcast episode. Um, and so the, it's, it's hard work, but I enjoy it. And yeah, you, I mean, you touch, you touch on uh, the tip of the iceberg in sort of yes. what is peer reviewed research, which is yes. the vast majority of it is conducted on uh, college students, uh, because the professors teach at colleges and they give the students course credit for, uh, for taking this survey. And so you get this thing that says people, 75% of people believe that. <laughs> well, right. actually it's, 75% of psychology majors <laughs> right, right, right. Of whatever um, who believe this. And, and, and then it's extrapolated as yes. out as if it's to all mankind. Research is very, very often conducted mostly on white people and yes. may not be relevant to people from other backgrounds and in other places. Yes. Um, decisions you make about how to do the analysis and what to emphasize in the write-up, these are all influenced by our biases. And so um, I, I actually get accused, as it were, of, of mm. having sort of a feminist liberal bias in my work and uh, and people say I just want the data I'm, I'm just here for the data and it's like well actually <laughs> the data is not bias free we sort of have this idea yeah. that science scientific information is bias free when actually the bias is baked into the research itself oh. and I'm just uh, I'm not saying I'm unbiased I'm saying I'm telling you what my biases are yes. and I'm telling you how that informs how I interpret the research and and some people find that really difficult to deal with, but that's increasingly the direction that I'm moving into. So as in like you started off saying, I'm trying to get to the facts and the research and I'm trying to dig through the biases, but now you're also saying, listen, research is not bias-free and therefore yeah. here's mine. Let me unpack it this way. But just so you know, if you're signing up for what I'm doing, I I'm leaning towards this. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. And, uh. and I think that I have always looked at sort of what are the limitations within the research itself. But increasingly, I'm seeing that uh, just I mean, the things we choose to research totally. are also informed by our biases. Totally. So yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, this comes up so much in terms of uh, patriarchy. You know, we, we all swim in these patriarchal waters. And I, I recently learned that attachment theory was developed by upper class white men in England who were sent to boarding school at age six. Now, does anyone think that that could have possibly impacted the way they think about their relationship with their parents? <laughs> what, of course. Oh, yes. my goodness. <laughs> how, how could it not? Yes. And so these models are developed by people who come in with this very uh, traumatic experience that happened to them in their childhood and they are the ones who are telling us how we need to think about attachment well maybe we should just do a double click on that and see like wh what about their experience is forming the way that we now think about attachment because that actually is such a huge basis for all the rest of the ones that kind of follow. It's yep. always kind of like assuming attachment um, yes. theory, right? Yes. And it's like, wait a minute, where did that come from? Yeah. Uh, and it's so different for different cultures. Oh, wow. Okay, see now, mind blown. My mind <laughs> <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. And these are these are the moments that I mean that's what drives me is I guess two things. Firstly, um having done more than 120 episodes right now, wow. making connections across ideas. Like yes. for example, when you use foods like ice cream or dessert as a reward for children for eating vegetables, they like vegetables less and then they yes. eat less and okay well let's think about homework if we're using screen time as a reward for getting your homework done your schoolwork do we think that that might be increasing the amount of liking that our child has for homework or is the same thing going to happen so so drawing those connections across two ideas i i really find fascinating and then secondly yeah as, as i move further into deconstructing what are the basic assumptions that we make it's like whoa this yeah. whole thing that i completely <laughs> taken for granted might actually have have be worth exploring in much greater depth than I would ever have thought was needed. <laughs> yeah, but now you're just blowing everything up and then repiecing all the different pieces together yes. again. Yes. <laughs> and so does this, is this like another PhD? Like, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, well, I don't have the first one yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of master's degrees, but no PhD. Oh, that's right. Um, you have two master's yeah. degrees. Yes. Yeah, one in psychology and another in education, just because yes. I felt like I needed a framework around what I was learning. Yes. Um, and I, I, I really do find that I get more out of the average podcast episode than I did out of the average paper that I wrote for grad school, <laughs> just because they're, they're so in-depth and I'm so vested in making sure that they're as complete as they can be and that they actually have information and that I can use and therefore that other people can use. So then this brings me kind of to my next question of the concept of homeschooling, because you're an advocate of homeschooling and yet you went through education in this other way that we all were brought up to believe is you know the, the way, way. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell me why you are an advocate of homeschooling then mm. yeah i think the the distinction there is that i'm not sort of against schooling mm -hmm. i'm against compulsory schooling where <sighs> the person who is being schooled doesn't get to choose what they're learning so mm -hmm. um so mm -hmm. if you choose to go to school as i did because i wanted to learn about psychology and child development i wanted to learn about education go for it in many in many cases that's the most expedient way to gain a lot of knowledge yep. quickly or yep. if i had a goal at the end of being a doctor or being a vet you know you you have to go to school and and 
and there's no other way around that. And, and if that end goal is so important to me, then I'm going to need to, at, at some point, at least at the college level, uh, get myself ready to go to school. Right. But um, And there's a reason for that too, right? Because there's a certain uh, assumption of a level of knowledge and a level of skill that we need in this world to be able to say, if you have this certificate, I know that you're qualified uh, to do that. So that that's a little bit more focused on um, skillfully applying mm -hmm. uh, knowledge. And, and yeah. so I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And there are some fields where we want to know that. Like if I need surgery, I yeah. kind of want to know that the person who's performing surgery on me yeah. has done certain things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, um, as if, like somebody watched over him the first couple of times he sewed right. something. Or her. <laughs> or her. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Cannot forget him or her or they. Yes. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't need to know what all those that training is, but I no. need to know that somebody has verified that some kind of training is Absolutely. Happened. Yes, um, there yes. are many other careers where you don't need that. And we sort of push people through compulsory schooling, even though they are m more likely to head towards those kinds of careers um, mm -hmm. and that that it may not be as appropriate for them. So that that's more of sort of at a, a high higher education level. Yes. But when we're talking about uh, homeschooling, we're usually talking about the um, sort of kindergarten through high school years. Yes. And yeah, I, I'm not against school. Uh, the thing that I I cannot reconcile in my head like there are these two ideas that I cannot hold in my head together one is respect for children mm -hmm. and truly seeing them as whole people mm -hmm. and allowing them autonomy uh, to make decisions that impact their life and then the other idea is compulsory education <laughs> <laughs> where there is no autonomy, where there is no choice. Uh, we may try to give the illusion of choice by allowing children to pick between two things that we've already predetermined are acceptable <laughs> to us. Um, but there's no real sense of choice here. And so as long as schooling involves somebody else deciding, this is what you're going to learn, and this mm. is how you're going to learn it, mm. and that decision is made from on high, usually out, well outside the classroom, and I the know. teacher doesn't have any autonomy here I either. Know. I know. Then, that, that, that part uh, is hard to yeah 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 uh yeah the, the, and i want to be clear here the teachers are not the problem the teachers are stuck in a system that yeah. um the, in many cases rewards them for getting their students to fill in bubbles on a, on a standardized test exactly um and and so they that's not how they want to teach this is not no. how they want to have relationships with their children so um but as long as we have that system in place we we're kind of stuck in, in terms of being able to have our children in a respect-based environment and having them in school. So that's why we are homeschooling our daughter. And so just kind of even unpacking the concept of school, because wasn't school really mm -hmm. meant for people to go to initially training, <laughs> training people to be factory workers, you know, th like different, there's sort of like different things um, around yeah, school. Well, that's not, that, that was sort of more in the fifties. I mean, school, mm. it was historically only for the elite. You know, if you were yes. going to work in a factory, you didn't need to go to school. That's right. Uh, the church was the one that indoctrinated everybody into the ideas uh, that, that needed to be held in life. And then as the church sort of lost its power, the state yes. stepped in and said, okay, we're going to be the ones that tell, tell children what to think. What? Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so schools are, were really set up for that purpose, for the purpose of making sure that uh, people would contribute to society, um, yes. that the people who were setting up the schools envisioned the way the society should run. Uh, and this is not the use and the me's of the world deciding this. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> the people is, in uh, power. 
elite yeah. group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in the fifties, we, we modeled school around this idea that, yeah, we need, we need a standardized procedure where yes. we can create people who have this certain set of skills so that they can, so they're fungible. You know, I can take person A or person B and either of them can build my widget in this. Right. Country. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And um, so I, I, there's a quote from Roberta Golenkoff that I love that she, from her book, Becoming Brilliant. She says um, that schools are doing an excellent job of preparing students for the jobs of 1950. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, my, my children go to school, you know, and um, one of them is constantly asking me, you know, why, like, why do I need to know this? Yeah. And, and the other one I had put into after school math program being the good you know, Chinese mom, mm-hmm. but I am where I'm like, Hey, listen, we need to be good at math. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he would come home and say, why do I need, like, what is the purpose of memorizing the squares of numbers yeah. up to 60? I already know that I can look this up. I already know that, you know, I, I, I can use a calculator. Mm-hmm. What do I need to know this for? Like, I don't understand the purpose. And and he had dutifully gone to this, you know, math after school program. Mm-hmm. And when he finally asked me that question, I said, you know what? You're right. You know, <laughs> and, um, and um, I said, I was hoping that you would learn math well in case you needed it for, you know, whatever you want to do in the future. You like computers and, you know, things like that. But he could not, like, he just, and he's a, he's a, they're, they're decently smart kids, right? But they were just kind of going, I'm bored. I don't understand the use of this. And I hate this now. And, and it got to a point where I thought, ooh, you know, so not only am I not getting them better at math, I'm getting them to hate it. And that's when I said, okay, all right, all right, all right. No, like, we're not, you know, we're not doing this. We're not, we're not doing this. I don't want you to hate math. So I took them out. Um, Mm. It's, I, it's, I just wanted to yes. put a spotlight on something you said there. I, I don't understand when I'm going to use this and I hate it now. I know. And that's really the key is that so much learning in school is divorced from any sense of connection to the child's reality. Yeah. Because how can it be connected? Because it was decided by bureaucrats in a conference room five years ago. So um, that that issue cuts across schooling. Yeah. Um, whereas when we are able to tailor our children's learning to their interests. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm now look now I'm hungry for it. I'm you know, reading more, more about this. And so... Um, this is a question that I'm really curious about. Do you parent your child or your children um, differently than the way you were parented? Yes, I was definitely raised differently than the way I'm raising my child. And uh, my my parents came to this with their own traumas, as, as all parents do. Uh, my yes. dad had a brain hemorrhage a few years before I was born, which mm-hmm. was very difficult for both him and my mom to deal with. Mm. Um, my Mom really wanted a child, but she wanted uh, a, a child who would need her, like that she could play with, almost like a doll. Uh, and I was super independent. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and so she she didn't like me very much. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we've talked about attachment already and all the issues that that has then created in my life. Yes. Uh, and then she died when I was uh, 10. So that was another sort of um, a big turning point in my life. Yes. And 
Uh, and my dad throughout the whole thing was doing absolutely the best that he could with the tools that he had. And, but there was a very, sen- a very strong sense of control, I think, running throughout the whole, mm-hmm. my, my whole childhood. Um, and I, that really came out. I observed it when he came over here about a year ago hmm. and, um, he was pushing my daughter around the supermarket in a trolley and she started to take her legs out of the, the leg holes and to kneel up. And he looked at her and he said, sit down. And she just kind of looked at him and didn't sit down immediately. And he said, sit down. <laughs> and I heard this from across the vegetable section in Safeway. And I, I kind of looked over to see what she would do. And she, her eyes were enormous. And she looked at him like she'd never been spoken to like that before. And she sat down. Um, and I just, I was just thinking, okay, yeah, I see. <laughs> I see where a lot of this is coming from now. And, and of course, that was one interaction. They had many, many other fun interactions as well throughout the whole thing. But just sort of... A, <laughs> <laughs> an illustration of how that control is. I mean, it's still there. And also it's something that I uh, very much am parenting in a very different way. You know, I, I would say, I would have said to her, oh, I, I, it looks like you're trying to get out of the holes. I'm worried you're going to fall out of the cart. And then together we would have come up with a way to make sure that she was safe. Isn't that interesting? So you would have pointed out, I see you. I see what mm-hmm. you're doing. Uh, I have my concerns. What is it that why is it that you're doing this? And let's yeah. figure out how we're going to get to a point where both our needs um, yeah. are yeah. met. I mean, that you, you, just, you just did the, the entirety of what I do in my work with parents on the parenting side. That's the whole other learning side. But on the parenting side, yeah. what we were trying to understand is what is my need in this situation? Yeah. Like my need in this moment is to keep you safe. What is your need in this situation? Yeah. I don't know why you're naming up. Are you trying to get a view of something on a high shelf or are your legs aching or like, uh, wh- what is the need you're trying to meet? And, and so then the only accept or the only logical thing to say is tell me more. How, how can we meet both of our needs? When you just tell her, sit down, yeah. uh, my need for keeping her safe is being met. Her need, I haven't even understood it. I have absolutely exactly. no idea what it is. Her need is not being met and she is being taught in that moment yes. that her need is not important. Well, it's so interesting that you say this because for me, it's a whole culture. Our whole culture um, really doesn't care uh, about anything other than, you know, please behave well um, yeah. as, as a child. Um, and the please is sort of optional. <laughs> <laughs> that, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, so I'm interested now, too, because you're a parent of a mixed race child. Uh, mm-hmm. your, your, your husband um, is Filipino mm-hmm. and you're British you're both American. Yes. And you now have a daughter mm-hmm. who is both. Can you tell me about how this impacts your approach to teaching your child about race issues, about mm-hmm. the way you parent her? Yeah. So uh, listeners can actually follow my entire journey yeah. uh, to discover my own white supremacy and privilege uh, through yes. the podcast. Okay. So Good. I did a, a whole series of episodes and they're all collected up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash race. Race. And, okay. Good. Um, and so, yeah, it was, if you had asked me four years ago, what privileges do you enjoy as a white parent? I would have said, Um, (laughs) I, am not sure that I have any. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And so going through this process of understanding, 
Oh, I do have white privilege. Like yes. I, I, if my child is eating a snack when we're heading into a store, I don't have to take that away from her because nobody's going to think she's stolen it. If she, she can bring her own toy into a supermarket, nobody's going to think she's stolen it. Um, just those two tiny illustrations. Yeah. Yes, I have white privilege. The way I advocate for my child in school uh, is going to be, am I going to advocate for something that is going to benefit her only? Or is it going to be something that's going to be actually accessible for all children? So, um, so yes, it informs every aspect of, of how I interact with the world as a parent now, uh, in terms of how we talk with her about it, you know, she, she is pr pretty white presenting. So uh, she has a lot of the privileges that white people have. It does in some ways, I think, make it a little bit easier for us to talk about it because we can kind of say, you know, oh, you can see that daddy has kind of darker skin and mama has lighter skin and your skin is between the two colors. And that's how, that's how those things can work. And, and it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, we talk about it I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we talk about it every day and it's not every day. It's this massive in-depth thing, but yeah, every day she wants to read these three uh, flashcards at dinner that are about achievements of black people. And so when we're having this, we're reading through the bullet points on the back of each one, we're putting that in context of, okay, this person was born in 1796 and it says they were an entrepreneur. What does that mean? How did that happen? How was a yeah. black person an entrepreneur in 1796 when most of the people who came over here were enslaved? Yeah. What what conditions did they set up in their lives? And often these are not questions we can answer, but we're having the conversation about that. Yeah. And so, you know, Thanksgiving it comes up. We, we're talking about this is this is not just a day when the Native Americans and the white people had a nice dinner together. No, it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're talking about the actual history of the tribes in that area, and also the tribes in our own area, and and saying they're they're still here. They're they're yes. still a vibrant part of our culture. Yes. They're you know, long gone. Um, Martin Luther King Day. Um, any news that's coming out about the riots yes. at the Capitol? Yes. What does that mean? Who who is doing this? What does it mean to have the privilege to be able to storm into the Capitol and know that you're probably going to come out of it fine at the end of the day with guns, um, no less. Yeah. yeah. So so we're talking about all of this stuff um, all the time. And I think that the key thing for for parents who might be thinking, how am I ever going to start doing this? Is it's yes. kind of like talking about sex. So if you're if you're using correct body parts with your children, if you can say yes. vulva and you can yes. say penis to your child, yes. it's kind of the same. It feels really weird and intimidating at first, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. That's amazing. And so this this is this is where you start sounding like a coach. And you, <laughs> you, I see that you're uh, considered a co-active coach. And mm -hmm. what, what is that? And what would parents get out of something like that? Yeah, it's a specific training for coaching. And I, when you ask that question, I've never been asked that question in an interview before. <laughs> so I went, I went back to their website and looked it up and, and they define co-active, meaning being in action together. And then they said, or actually maybe it should be being together in action. <laughs> Ah. And so uh, the the method of coaching really weaves together a lot of the approaches that I use in my work already, which is related to the importance of being and not always just do 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 doing and yes. and you know which yes. is so tied up in white privilege and um, and patriarchy and capitalism and uh, understanding the sensations that are happening in your body and what is that telling you about your experience that our culture says if it's below the neck there's no information that's relevant. <laughs> 
Isn't coming that, out of it. Yes. Like yeah. Because it's the brain, right? Like it's always yeah. about the brain. Yeah. It's all in the brain. It, and, yeah. and my, my mind is completely separate from yours. Yeah. And yeah. I, I look out in the world theory of mind. Uh, theory of mind. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, but but actually, the knowledge that we're creating here is being created between the two of us, yes. between the two of our minds. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so so the coaching uh, sort of pulls a lot of these elements together. But in terms of what it means for parents, <laughs> I sort of think of it like I'm, I'm going to listen to you like nobody's ever listened to you before. <laughs> wow. Um, it, because it prioritizes awareness of yourself. Yes. And your relationships with with others, it allows me to interact with you in a way that uh, you know maybe we're in a coaching relationship and you're bringing a problem to me and you're describing it to me and then you pause, and I'll say you paused just there. Something shifted right there. What was that? And oh and and that yes. and and being sort of having the willingness to go there and dive deep into that um, is, is something that we don't get very often in our culture. And when we can do that and we can, uh, be present, truly present in our relationships with each other, mm-hmm. uh, we can also do this with our children and yeah. seeing how, uh, being present in our relationships with our children really enhances those. And, and I think parents have a lot of trouble with that because, uh, sometimes when you're present, when you're truly present, the traumas that you've experienced in your childhood can just <sighs> really bubble up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like you you uh you you make you make your brain stop all the constant flow of I need to do this, I need to do that for a minute and you yeah. just settle in for a minute and all of the stuff that you thought you had a lid on just kind of bubbles up. Um and so I am actually running a workshop starting in March called Taming Your Triggers that I run a bunch of times and and it's about, you know, how how can we better understand these traumas that have happened to us yeah. and and be here and be present without having those kind of ruling our lives and our interactions with our children. So oh, yeah, it's, it's really about the listening and, and the being present. Well, and, and I think mindful comes up a lot. You know, people, people say that, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, for someone who, you know, doesn't really understand it, it, it feels a little bit scary and a little bit, you know, out there, but you've mm-hmm. kind of described it as being aware of what's going on, you know, and, and even, even when you're pausing, because how many people are conscious of the fact that they've paused? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, yeah. It almost sounds like psychotherapy, uh, what it is. Yeah. It's, and, and it's not, I should be clear, it's not therapy. It's, uh, and one distinction there is that when you're coaching someone, you're seeing them as a whole person who has many of the answers that they need. Mm. They just haven't quite figured out how to put the pieces together. Whereas mm. when you're talking about therapy, you're sort of inherently coming from this model of the person has a problem. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so it, it's a very different way of seeing the person that is being coached or that is in therapy. So, um, but yeah, the, the being present is really critical and, and we're taught not to do that. We're taught to get on this treadmill and just keep running as long as you're moving, as long as you're running, as long as you're doing something, you're doing things right. Whereas what we're, what's actually happening is we're not present in our own lives. Like our whole life is just this one big pile of to-do lists and memories and, and worries about the future. When what's here is you yes. and me in this conversation right now. Yeah. And if you and I cannot be here 
truly with each other, then we're missing something. We're missing yeah. something profound. And, and I think that that's really the same in our relationships with our spouses and with our children. And if we can bring that sense of presence to those relationships, we understand our children better. We can respond to them more effectively so that their behavior doesn't seem this like this mysterious black box that we have no idea what they're going to do next, that we can truly understand them and they can truly understand us. And, and that's such a profound thing. Um, when, when another person truly understands you, yeah. it, it just, it's, it's what life's about. I think. I, I think so too. I really, that, that is very profound. And so you've left me with a hundred tidbits that are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to have to go back and listen and write this out. But my, my, my last question for you then mm-hmm. is if you could only leave one main message, one, mm-hmm. one, one message uh, to, to our listeners, what would that be? I think it would be something that I'm in the process of discovering, which mm. is that parenting is a journey that can help to make you whole. Um, and I think it's so easy to think like, to f- or feel like we have this veneer of control. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, perfect. And yeah. that we have a lid on everything. And particularly in our early lives, we're still trying to figure everything out. And and I look to uh, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan friar, actually. Um, and I can give you a link to one of his books that I've really enjoyed. And he talks about the, how the first half of life is about making a container. And the second half of life is about figuring out what to put in that container. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and, and I think that the thing about parenting is that parenting exposes the cracks in your container (laughs) you feel like you've built this thing and okay yeah i'm i'm ready to oh oh it's leaking out faster (laughs) (laughs) what do we do about that do do we keep cracking further and further and we keep passing on that trauma to our children and the next, the next generation gen- and, and pass it on to the next generation yeah. or do we work on healing ourselves so that we can live our fullest expression of our lives in community with others and so that's i think is is the the message that i would want to leave people with is to figure out um what what is the container that you've built and and how leaky is it <laughs> <laughs> and it, and chances are and richard Roy doesn't talk about this and i think that's the thing that's missing from the book is is the idea that the vast majority of our containers are pretty leaky and uh, and what are we going to do about that that's our responsibility it's not our child's behavior that needs fixing it's it's our thing to say okay is this important to me do i want to be in relationship with these people differently than i am right now okay if so what am i going to do about that not what am i going to change about you but what am i going to do about that and that enables me to show up in this life as a more fulfilled a more whole person and that's what i want (laughs) That's amazing. In my life and, and a lot of the parents that I work with want that as well. Thank you so much, Jen. I really enjoyed that so much. For sure. I'm so glad that you reached out. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to Sandwich Parenting. Visit us at www.sandwichparenting.com or drop me a line at sherry at sandwichparenting.com.